You're listening to Paper Napkin, a podcast about building stronger and more meaningful connections. I'm Kendra Rogers. Thank you so much for joining me for another conversation, this time with my dear friend Jess, who I met just over a year ago, but feel like I've known a lifetime. Jessica Wilkinson is a self-described recovering management consultant. When we spoke a few months back for this podcast, she was figuring out what comes next. And during our conversation, she hinted at a financial services proposition for women. Since then, she's built a business plan, engaged a variety of impressive stakeholders, and gained real traction with that totally mellow, definitely not ambitious at all project involving asking what it would look like if women built a bank. When she's not tackling an entire industry's gender inequities, having meaningful conversations with women about money and impacting the financial services sector and beyond via the Hilda Project, she's having meaningful conversations and building lasting connections in her personal life. I wanted to include Jess in the podcast because I always learn something from her when it comes to connection, growth, and authenticity. Jess is someone I admire for adding a lot to the lives of the people around her and for her confidence in sharing her thoughts and staying true to her convictions. I think you'll enjoy learning from her too. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me on the Paper Napkin podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited that this is coming to fruition after hearing me talk about the concept and, and now I get to be a guest. You do get to be a guest. You get to be a guest because I think you are a great example of connection and authenticity and of this idea that you can give more than you take in a relationship and that actually if you enter the relationship with that mindset that you'll build something really great from it. I don't know if I've just completely (laughs) made that up or if you feel that aligns with who you are as well. No, I think that aligns with who I strive to be. I'm not sure I actually achieve it all the time, but when you think about connection, I would say the connections with people in my life have gone through different maturity and and as they've evolved over the years and, and especially here, having to grow a new network, a new friendship network, a new professional network in London, you spend some time thinking, okay, what is my best foot forward? It's a nice opportunity to have a first step or a do-over, but really thinking about what do I want to curate here and, and what is the life I want to have and the connections that I'm trying to build in London, whether they be professionally or personally or romantically, it's something that I want to make sure that people are getting more from it than, than I'm getting from it. That's the only way I feel that it's valuable or fair. <laughs> the ratio in your mind of how much you should be giving and how much you should be receiving? I'm curious. I I mean, I don't know if it can be that technical, maybe a two thirds, one third for every third that I'm getting from someone. I want to make sure I'm giving two thirds. I'm building this concept right now for a potential new business for every pound or dollar that I extract from my customers. I want to make sure that I'm giving them at least £2.50 in return. So that's maybe just the lens of what I'm looking at right now is if I'm asking someone for a dollar, if I'm asking for 30 minutes or whatever that equivalent is, how can I create that exponential return for someone? And you touched on what you're doing, but what do you do and why do you do it? I'm more interested in the why. (laughs) It's really interesting. I've always been someone who really defined myself by my job and my work. And and that's a, a thing that I've really identified myself by and I'm I'm currently unemployed for the first time in my my adult life. I'm doing some things but I I made the decision early in 2021 to step back from my career as a business consultant and a management consultant and and it comes to this clean slate. You get a do over what would you want to do? I've always been really obsessive about solving complex problems and and really trying to understand the why behind what happens. So I'm a professional problem solver just because I'm curious and inquisitive, almost to a point of annoyance. That's what I would professionally describe myself as. And as a professional solver of problems and especially solver- And a creator. I'm a creator of problems as well. Let's be very clear. (laughs) (laughs) If you create the problems and then solve them, you're a hero. (laughs) That's actually like the the secret behind business consulting and management consulting is you write the paper and you create this entire panic situation. You're like, but wait, I can fix it for you. We're going off script. I'm going to go deep with you right off the bat. Let's do it. I feel like a complex problem in our world is loneliness and a lack of connection. How do you think we can solve that? (laughs) 
<laughs> this is fitting because I'm reading a book called Together. It's from a doctor in the US who was basically trying to solve this. He, he was doing an assessment of the chief medical officer for the US government, whatever the equivalent is. And, and he was going to communities, to physicians and, and health professionals and saying, what are the biggest challenges? And most of it came down to people were seeing loneliness in their patients. And it's irony that the more connected our world is, the more lonely we tend to be on, on an individual basis. And particularly in the pandemic, I think everyone's still going through these periods of immense forced loneliness or, or the ways that you would normally connect you don't have access to. For me, in the times when I have been lonely, and I've definitely suffered from sort of the most extreme bouts of loneliness I've ever had in the past three years, it's really sitting with the loneliness and saying, okay, well, what are you lonely for? And what types of connections are you really hungry for? And really doing that internal work has shaped how I outreach and how I'm building relationships and focusing on, on maintaining relationships going forward. It's not just, oh, I want to be around people because I'm lonely. It's what element, what specifically are you lonely for? And what are the drivers behind that? Like, we have to get really uncomfortable with ourselves and one, acknowledging that we're lonely and that's not always a bad thing, but sometimes acknowledging it can be tricky. And then two is, is really getting into the why. Well, you can be lonely with other people as well, mm -hmm. right? Loneliness doesn't just mean being alone and you can be not lonely while alone as well. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely been at parties and you're around tons of people and you feel alone, you feel lonely or you feel disconnected. Whereas sometimes I spend days up by myself and I'm more fulfilled than I've ever been. I think that just means I'm a true dyed in the wool introvert. But it really comes out, I remember two Decembers ago, I was in Calgary and I was doing the, the Christmas party circuit and, and I was going back and forth between Calgary and London for a long time. And I sort of had, had one foot in either world and I was really lonely because I wasn't quite sure where I fit. And I remember going to all these Christmas parties and stuff that I've done for years, it's really traditional, but I just remember sitting there and feeling disconnected or lonely and sort of recognizing that my whole life or my whole self isn't necessarily here anymore. I really needed to take along that journey to say, you need to find where your whole self does belong or, or where it's showing up. I've definitely been in those rooms where you're sitting there and you're like, there's 300 people, but I'm very lonely right now. And I really just want to go home and be by myself. <laughs> I've never felt lonelier than I felt at a conference in London because <laughs> British people don't want to be your friend. I've had to, you know, travel by myself for work. Conferences are a great example where you go in and you're surrounded by 2000 people and you could connect with anyone, but the natural impulse for at least mine is to connect with no one because I find the small talk to be the most grating and sort of the biggest hurdle to, to overcome. And in that case, I would much rather be alone than be, you know, lonely in these groups. So how do you connect? I went through a divorce a few years ago and it was one of those defining moments in my life where you get that sense of who are your people and, and whenever someone's going through a complicated life change, whether it's somebody has an illness or someone's getting divorced, you, you end up reevaluating all your relationships and, and people start reacting to you in different ways. And that was a really important time for me to, to get very quiet and, and I, I found out you know, who my ride or die friends were and it would have been easy and was easy in some cases to just distract yourself and you're lonely for the first time you're going through this tumultuous relationship event and and so you end up going out and it's really easy to make superficial bonds just because you're trying to get distracted from your life or remain distracted from your life so I had to ignore that tendency ignore that as an easy way out and and really focus on who are the the few people that I can trust or that I really could unpack and process my emotions. And, and he said, we're going deep off the bat. You, I needed to find it was higher quality people, but fewer conversations and higher quality conversations to, to really dig into that. And that's what I found even pandemic related. We've got that emotional fatigue and exhaustion going on, and there's only so much energy to go around. And I, I find myself sort of even leaning into those tendencies is you pick your few people that you can really connect with and invest in those or maybe over invest in those, as opposed to spreading yourself out across a lot of interactions. And you mentioned earlier that you think you're an introvert. <laughs> I'm interested in that because I don't, I don't see you as an introvert. So I'm curious what makes you think that you're an introvert obviously yourself better than anyone, but I'm also interested in how you think that comes across to other people. Do other people think you're an introvert? No, no one believes I'm an introvert, which means I think I'm just a con artist as well as an introvert, I guess. I definitely can draw on extroverted 
elements of my personality. And I've learned over time to do that. And if you go into a conference and you don't know anyone, or you have to public speak, or you need to really to show up at a birthday dinner or a party or something, I can always show up and, and sort of do the thing that needs to be done. But there's a lot of mental preparation that goes into that and having to psych myself up. And then lots of times I need a lot of downtime after high periods of socialization. There'll be weekends that people just don't hear from me. And so I guess people don't necessarily see the introversion because I, I sort of go into a cocoon and I don't go on social media or, or I don't talk to very many people. So if you see me socializing at a party and probably it's part of my people pleasing element of my personality where I'm like, oh, we're out for a party. It has to be fun. I want to make sure the hostess feel comfortable. I want to make sure everyone thinks we're having fun. So I definitely try and show up as for the occasion as my best self. But there's a lot of mental pregame that goes into it and a lot of just sheer si- sitting in silence that happens afterward. <laughs> the staring at the wall is the, is the part that the other people don't see. Yeah, exactly. I'm in the fetal position, just scrolling through the news on my phone and just staying completely silent. <laughs> You mentioned this idea of quality over quantity, and especially for someone who is introverted and who, as you just explained, feels that there's a hangover that comes with connection. Do you find that the hangover is less so when you are feeling like it's a meaningful connection? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of in my life is I have got a really strong group of people that when I have a conversation with them, I leave more energized than than when I get in. And and a lot of people call them energy vampires or something. When you speak to someone and you're sort of mentally and physically exhausted after that whole exchange. And it's not to say that those are bad people. You just don't connect with them in the same way. So I do have, and I mean, I can't view as one of those people who I leave an interaction and I'm either buzzing with excitement or I've been inspired or, or I have a lot of energy and, and I've been trying to be very judicious around really putting energy into those relationships and, and really hoping to the point of at the beginning of the conversation is making sure that I want them to leave as as inspired or as energized as when I leave so I, that's something I'm very conscious of that I get so much from those valuable relationships I want to make sure I'm holding up my end of the bargaining and giving more than I'm taking Well, I count you as one of those people too. And I certainly find myself inspired and energized after our conversation as well. Thank you. Do you think that there is a secret sauce to that type of connection? Is there a way for you to identify it early on? Or is it something that needs to be investigated? I mean, both, I guess. There are some people that you just connect with that you sort of meet once and you're like, oh, you're, you're one of my people or you're my person. And I've got a lot of really good friendships where, yeah, we, we met once and clicked right off the bat. And so, so there's a little bit of your energy or who you are as a person just really connects with those people. On the flip side, there's people who you had that in the past and then you grow apart for whatever reason, whether it's circumstance or whatever. So I don't think there is, you have to be, and it's really hard to plan for too. So I think you have to be very grateful for those connections when they happen and really take advantage of them while you have them and, and try and foster them for as long as you can. But if they do start to slip away or, or something changes, just be very grateful and feel blessed that it happened and then look for it in, in someone else. I guess it's similar to dating in that, in that respect. Well, it's interesting because with dating, people are very intentional about the people that they date and very quick to go, mm, not for me and move on. Or I mean, Maybe not. We've all been there. <laughs> we haven't done that. But we hope that that's how we act. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's not always the case when it comes to friendship connections. And it's not the case when it comes to even professional connections. Sometimes we keep people around for longer in those instances than we would in a romantic relationship. And I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting I've almost taken the the flip side is that I put so much into into my friendships and and your chosen family too. A lot of people, if you don't have a, a really strong connection with family members, you, you tend to build it elsewhere. And I'm very particular and very choosy about who is in my friend circle. I think all of my friends can agree that I haven't necessarily been as judicious with how I've been dating. I tend to cut loose on the dating a lot sooner <laughs> than on friendships. How do you keep people? How do you stay connected? 
that's been really, that's something I've been struggling with. And I was, I was speaking with one of my best friends from home, Megan, about this the other day. And that for the first time ever, there's an eight hour time difference and eight hours, it's just enough to be annoying. And we have all these tools and, and the reality is just the, the rhythms of our lives is when I'm available to speak, she's either asleep or right in the middle of her, her work day and sort of vice versa. And in a lot of cases, and I don't know if you found this moving to London as well. When you remove yourself from sort of the day-to-day connectivity of what's happening in people's lives, it it can be really difficult to maintain a connection. So you you end up, I've got some really good friends that we really haven't missed a beat and we get on the phone and it's immediately talking about philosophy or business or art or theater or life, big messy problems of life. We get into that and then others are really struggling to maintain that connection when I'm, I'm sort of removed from the day-to-day. So I don't think I have a satisfactory answer for that. I think there's people that I'm not in their day-to-day life anymore and they're not in mine, but I still want to be connected to them. So you end up being very creative around what do you care about? What do you want to stay connected about? And you almost have to put more energy into those relationships and those conversations. Do you think a part of that, if I were to pull this thread, is that when we connect on a deeper level, When we're talking about life's messy problems, it's easier to keep the space in between feeling like you're still connected. I think there are connections where you feel like you're every day in front of them. You know, you work with them or you live down the street from them or you every Friday night go to dinner with them or something like that. And then there are those longer term connections. And I wonder if the commonality in the longer term ones is the depth of conversation that creates more of a foundation. I think so. And I I mean, the people that I'm really inspired by are, are not the ones that I've had a running update on what we're doing in our lives together. It tends to be, I have no idea what their kids are necessarily doing on a day-to-day basis or, but we really get into what are we reading and are we worried about realism and politics? And, and those are, those tend to be the conversations that really, that really energize me and, and keep my brain going. So I think you're right. Those are the ones that it's sort of day-to-day life agnostic. They're very interesting people. And we have the same, not necessarily the same opinions about things, but the same curiosity about problems and issues and how all these things differ, how all these things connect and you end up building off of each other's ideas. And those are the relationships that I found are, are easier to sustain when there is, you know, a gap. It makes me think that maybe the questions that I should be asking and that we should be asking of people is less, especially in this sort of virtual world where so much of our conversations happen via text is less, how are you, which elicits a response of good or not even good these days, fine. <laughs> and you can just, it elicits like a, <laughs> what's the emoji for, Ugh. <laughs> but maybe it's asking questions like, what's a book you've read lately that you've enjoyed, or what's something you've been thinking about and ruminating on? And I feel like we don't ask those questions that much, but they're the questions that we're asking ourselves more than how am I today? Fine. Yeah. How am I tomorrow? Fine. Well, exactly. And I think that's why my favorite conversations are the second bottle of wine conversations where you're really into it. There's a little bit of lower inhibitions, but you're really digging into things. And it can be, for me, I love to ask those questions. If, if I am an ask about the day, what is the best part of your day? Or what do you really, what are you worried about this week? Or what are you grateful for? I mean, I'm always talking about what, what books I read with people or what they've read. But yeah, asking more intentional questions. And part of it is, sometimes you're in conversations and and you're like, I'm really not in the mood for it to get into it. And it's because those conversations do take, do take some sort of emotional investment. And, and sometimes you're like, let's just keep it high level. I just need to do a quick check-in with you and and move on where I definitely think trying to ask people more intentional questions is, is something I've been trying to do with mixed success based more on my part than anything like that. And I guess the other flip side of that is also that when we have these conversations, you can start with, how are you? And you can not respond with fine. You can respond with, well, I'm finding this element of work challenging, or I'm really struggling with this element of whatever. But that comes with a vulnerability in that you're not always sure that the response is going to be positive versus the response is going to be, damn, I was just checking and I didn't really actually want all this versus maybe (laughs) if you're in the mood and perhaps it's a part of normalizing a delay in response as well, because those are conversations that 
are fun to have if you feel like you want to have them. But there's this immediacy that comes sometimes with the virtual space that makes it challenging because you can't always want to engage. That's not natural. Yeah. I think I'm the worst. If I don't feel like looking at my messages or responding, I just don't, which I think is probably irritating to everyone (laughs) because there's increasingly more delay in my messages. But we also need to recognize that people shouldn't be on demand. I'm so confused when I email someone and they email me right back. I'm like, were you just sitting there? Don't feel the need to come back at me right away. And and there is this thing where, you know, we expect people to be on demand and attention to be on demand. And that's unrealistic for someone to expect and unrealistic for someone to give. And there's a certain amount of psychological safety that needs to come with. If you're going to ask somebody a a deeper question, then, then how are you? And you really get into it. And I'm definitely good with it when it's someone I've been building a relationship with, or, or we started there, but especially building professional connections or just meeting someone for the first time, you're always nervous about taking it too far. For me, meaningful connection is I can be very vulnerable with another human and and they feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable with me right back. And I think that's something that's really precious and such a blessing when somebody does show you full vulnerability and, and they're willing to open it up and it can be really uncomfortable. And, and it's something that until a few years ago, I definitely wasn't comfortable with. Being comfortable with vulnerability, either giving it or, or receiving it was not something that I was okay with. And it, it's taken a lot of therapy bills to get me into that. That sort of extreme vulnerability and psychological safety is a building block of any great thing, whether it be a great relationship or a great business partnership or a team, and whether it's a sports team or a work team organization, whatever it is, those are sort of the two things making people feel safe. So that's the core thread that I would tie through any meaningful connection. Making people feel safe and being comfortable in that vulnerability. How much of that comes back to self-connection as a first step? Most of it. There was no way I would have had the tools to give that to someone else until I was comfortable with it. And in a lot of cases, and unless I'm willing to show vulnerability, it, it's very difficult for me to expect that from someone else. That comes to the core of it is really getting comfortable with that. And that can be a scary thing. Anytime you sort of put out that you're not all right, or that you don't have the answer, or you might be struggling with something that's showing a a quote unquote weakness. So if you're willing to, for yourself, overcome showing that weakness and and opening yourself up to that and, and opening yourself up to whatever comes back, there's a lot of things that starting with, I don't know how to solve this problem, or I'm I'm really scared about this. I'm really nervous about this. It's amazing what you're able to come back and what people are are willing to gift you with from their time or their experience or their expertise. So that really is critical. And that's something that should be taught in high school or or in schools. How do you talk about your feelings? How do you talk about when you're feeling nervous, you're feeling unsafe? Because that would opens up a lot of things, the striving to be, we have to be perfect. We have to have the answers. It, it can be really damaging and it closes you off to a lot of conversations. And it opens you to a lot of further dialogue with yourself when you're able to be more vulnerable. I do wonder, I'm not sure how this question is going to sound because I might just sound like a jerk, but <laughs> at what line do you cross from vulnerability to Eeyore and how do people, because there's a, there's a fine line in there and I'm just curious about your thoughts around that line and and how to connect and be vulnerable without, and share your weaknesses and share your struggles without womp womp. I am a hard line on that, to be honest. I'm a probably over solution oriented person. It's coming from not necessarily being comfortable and sitting with my own mess. I'm always like, well, what are we going to do about it? How can we fix it? Something happened. What are the root causes? What can we sort it out? And one of my friends at home, she's like, you're not the one to go to if you just want to wallow and really sit in anger or sit in, in sadness. She's like, you're not the one to go through for pity or sympathy. You're the one to go to if there needs to be action. And I have a very strict three-strike policy where if, if someone's coming to me with a with an issue or a problem, we'll talk about it three times. I'll give it my all for those three times. But if, if the individual hasn't done anything to sort of fix to take any sort of action whatsoever. It doesn't need to be anything I said, just any action. After the third time, I pretty firmly shut it down and say, listen, I've, I've got nothing more to say about this. I really struggle with people who complain in perpetuity. And, and we all know people who get into that cycle where they 
complain about their job or they complain about their partner, or they complain about their family, whatever. And that's something that I find really, I struggle with listening and holding on to that. So I do have a very action oriented, hard three strike rule, which I've implemented many times and has caused a lot of issues when I've, when I've done that, but that's something I know I have to put in place to protect myself. And and frankly, I don't think giving people the space to be in a really negative headspace and complain about things constantly is helpful to them either. Well, and I think this complaining and perpetuity, as you put it, like you said there at the end, it's about boundaries and putting boundaries in place. And sometimes connection is misinterpreted as availability or as <laughs> non-stop being there for someone. And that's something that I have learned and I'm still learning because I'm a squishy person, <laughs> but you are really brilliant at boundaries. And so one of the questions that I wanted to ask was around that. And I'm glad that you brought up the three strike rule. Are there any other ways that you have created boundaries in order to actually create more meaningful connections? I think being good at boundaries is maybe I'm a bitch, but I'm okay with it. I guess <laughs> I'm a bitch in service of my mental health. I, I don't know. I think thing of availability and it comes down to, to giving and taking in relationships. And if someone is expecting me to be available to them 24 seven, if I'm expecting them to sort of drop everything and, and come to my side whenever I need something, that's not fair. People have other lives to live in. And there are some things when it's a code red and you really need to be there for someone and it's really important. But I found that there's been people in my life who have sort of a code red one to two times a week. And it, it does become sort of a, a boy who cried wolf situation. And over time, I just don't have the energy for it. So part of it is I don't look at my phone a lot. If I don't have the emotional capacity to answer small talk, I just, I won't. And I, I think that I could do a better job at, at communicating to people and say, listen, I'm, I just don't have the bandwidth right now. I'm sorry. I tend to just ignore it and then pick it up later, three days later. But if you're just asking me about bland questions about my day, this is not a priority one critical response. If you're asking me, I fought with my partner and I don't know what to do, then yeah, I'll answer that message. But if it's day to day, I I take that latitude to respond at will. But I feel like you're the queen of being accessible and available and connected with so many people. You're always doing something and giving to other people. And I honestly just sit back in awe at how you do it. (laughs) I don't know how. I feel like I would live four of your days and then I would have to go into a week long silent Buddhist retreat to overcome. (laughs) Well, we both know that I could never be silent for a week. So (laughs) (laughs) differ, but I would say lots of bubble baths and also actually a unending sense of guilt that I feel when I am not supporting people. And I think that actually part of this podcast and part of the journey along it is me understanding people and how they connect and actually how that can help me connect better because I have been told forever that I'm a good connector. But what I'm learning is that good connectors don't necessarily give absolutely everything of themselves in order to be good connectors. That's not what that means. No, and I, I think expecting that from someone is actually quite a selfish act when you have other things going on in your life and, and you have other things that you want to pursue. And I found especially when we're younger, it's all about the friend group. And there's always, you know, some level of drama and everyone's doing everything and and everyone's constantly available to everyone. And over time, I think my relationship with my friends have matured into, we may not connect every day, but when we do, it is the interactions are fewer, but they're more meaningful. And it's finding the balance. And, And sometimes it's just a shared expectation. If I've got a friend who connection for them is constant access and that's how they stay connected. That's something that doesn't really work for me. So over time, those relationships have faded or they've changed and evolved because I, I, I can't give that. And I've seen friend breakups over time and they're almost more traumatizing than actual breakups in some cases. And it it's really just this constant evolution, this ebb of flow of who's in your life and why, and recognizing that nothing is necessarily static. Yeah, and allowing for the ebb and flow of the relationship as a part of the relationship as well. Friend breakups are one thing and they're sad, but friend fizzles are okay. We get this coming back to the conversation that we had earlier around dating versus friendships and the difference in the way that we approach them. It feels like there are many people who feel that they can't allow a, a friendship to end or that it's some sort of 
moral issue with them or personality problem with them if they're not keeping the same friendships up all the time. When in actuality, from a capacity standpoint, if you really think about it, there's no possible way that every person you've met since you were able to talk, your best friend when you were five years old isn't your best friend now and you don't think that that's a personal failing on your part. But we do, I think, when we get to adulthood in a different way sometimes. Yeah, hundred percent. And it, and it comes to who's in your life and it's more pronounced when your friends have kids and all of a sudden their life is, is very different and their priorities are very different. And a lot of them are just in pure survival mode, let's be honest, especially when they're younger. And I've seen sort of friends, they're off the radar for a bit because they're working on other things and it's not a personal feeling on me, not a personal feeling on them. And I'm not a great friend to them in that because sometimes I can't connect to what they're dealing with in the same way, or we, we haven't been able to maintain that. But then they're, in some cases, their kids have gotten older and they're you know, reaching back into their, their friend group for that connection. And I think you have to be open to it, that there are ebbs and flows. And, and sometimes pe- there's just an ebb. Sometimes people just, they go and you can just be very grateful that you have them in your life and still take pieces of it. And it's not like you'll never speak to them again. But if you think about relationships as you've got your tight inner circle and then sort of ripples or concentric circles like that go out further the touch points may become fewer the conversations may become later there's lots of times I'll go to my hometown and I speak to people that you grew up with and and you can have a really good time sharing memories and talking about the life that you had together before but in reality it can be very hard to maintain those connections because your lives look so much different and so I think it's it's not a like you said it's not a personal failing of anyone we just need to be kind to ourselves and be kind to the people who are in our lives that it's okay that there are different seasons there are different cycles things flow it's allowed and part of that also is expectation and the fact that you have higher expectations for yourself than other people often do of you. So while you may think that you're not a good communicator or you're not always there, as you said earlier, I think that you are. It's like seeing people from the outside and you say that I'm really great at being connected and accessible, but I feel that I'm not necessarily all the time or that I can think of someone who's better. You can always think of someone who's better and you can always look at ways that you can improve and there's value in that and being self-aware enough to say these are elements that I can improve but there's also value in taking a step back and allowing some grace and some space for yourself yeah absolutely it depends on what your version of improve is if your metric is oh I need to be more accessible and available to more people that may be an improvement to them but what is that doing for you so there is a little bit of selfish behavior that you're allowed to engage in to say what do I need from this connection what do I need from this friendship group and allowing for differences in that and if it's not serving you it's okay (laughs) to walk away from things that aren't serving you sometimes it's can be a tumultuous action in the moment to do it when it happens But if if situations aren't serving you or for relationships, whether they be a relationship with an employer, if it's not working for you and you have the option to leave and go somewhere else, that's okay. That's not a failing on you. That's not a failing employer. It's just is a chapter that's come to an end. The piece around the amount you are giving and the amount that you're getting is interesting because it reminds me of what we talked about right at the beginning of this conversation when you said that you give two thirds and you expect back one third. And actually that ratio is not possible if you're giving everyone two thirds, you wouldn't be able to fill yourself back up if you didn't have some way external to you and internal to you to start to refill that gas tank. Yeah, absolutely. And and sometimes it's just adding the element of time. In some cases, when I'm mentoring someone or if I'm giving someone career advice and it's going into that and not expecting anything back. And I'm so grateful to be in a position now to help other people with their career or be the person they come to it for advice. What I get out of that, I get a lot of personal satisfaction and it allows me to think about my career, my experiences in a different light. So I'm grateful for that. And in a lot of cases, I've found more recently things that I've given out to and and put out to the universe have a weird way of coming back in odd ways that you didn't really, you didn't expect or it's coming out of left field and connections that I made when I was working as a public relations intern when I was 19, I've all of a sudden popped up in my life in a really meaningful way, which I would not have expected. So I think it's it's less transactional than I give you this and I get this back. Sometimes we have this great connection and I guess 15 years later, something's coming up out of it. That's a really interesting thread that I just want to pull quickly is this idea of connection being transactional because this is intentionally not a networking podcast. This is a podcast about connection. The key piece there, 
one of the key pieces to connection is the lack of it feeling like a transaction and the openness with which it becomes something that is, to use a buzzword, authentic. <laughs> well, yeah, networking is something that strikes me with fear because it generally means a lot of small talk, <laughs> which is something that I absolutely dread. And it can be whether you're at a wedding or whether you're at a conference and you're speaking with someone and they're looking over your shoulder to see if there's someone more important to speak with. Or they're sort of tolerating a conversation with you, but looking for someone more important. And it feels like shit. No one ever feels good about that. And, and I, I always hate that. And that's the feeling that comes to mind when I hear about networking and, and growing your network. And there's these artificial situations where we get together and talk and it, it all feels very transactional. And working in a few industries that I've worked in, the relationships always felt transactional. You had, you had friendships. It was based on, well, is your company going to buy from my company? Or are you able to introduce me to someone else? And it never really sat right with me and never something that I could really fully participate in because I just didn't like how it made me feel. And it always made me feel less worthy. Like I wasn't worthy because I didn't have a big procurement budget behind me, or I wasn't worthy enough to hold someone's attention at a conference or at a gala or, or something. So one of the best things about getting older is just having the confidence and the ability to say, I'm not putting myself in those situations anymore. So things become very transactional for my spidey senses, or I'm, I'm feeling like this is a very transactional thing. I don't suffer from FOMO, so I can usually get myself out of there. So perhaps part of meaningful connection is also acknowledging people's worth without making them feel like you're wanting something from them, but acknowledging their worth and who they are in that moment. Yeah. I mean, maybe if we think about worth as to not what someone can do for me or what doors they can open, it's what can we create together? And if there's something that we can mutually work on and ideas that we can build off of each other, and, and if there's ways that we can help each other, or it, it's around that, it's sort of a mutual assessment of worth. It's funny you bring up worth because I spent the afternoon thinking about this and I'm building up a financial services proposition and thinking about net worth and net wealth and language I want to use. And, and wealth has a lot of connotations of abundance and it can be financial and be something else. Well, worth to me feels when we talk about someone's net worth, it seems to tie their reason for existing to a, a very specific dollar amount, which I didn't like. So I've been ruminating on this wealth versus worth thing for a few hours now. And I think it's still twinging in the back of my brain. <laughs> That's really interesting. Well, and coming back to the conversation that we just had, where you said you're at a conference and you're feeling like someone thinks that you're unworthy. I think yeah. there is an inherent idea of worthiness and unworthiness that uh, that is probably brought up through the word worth within the context of net worth that I had never really considered. Yeah, it's a weird thing. And I, I think it, it links into the women's imposter syndrome. We're not worthy of this, or we're not worth this opportunity. And, and it's one of those words that it has, it seems to have a lot of baggage. Maybe it's just my personal baggage that I'm attaching to it. But anytime I've been in situations where people have made me feel unworthy, it's horrible. And it, it's sort of a little bit dehumanizing a bit. I think coming to connections and thinking about you can't put your worth in something that's so subjective. <laughs> And you can't allow that feeling to manifest in others as well. I think so much of the conflict that happens in the world is because instead of focusing on connection, people are focusing on who is more worthy or who has more power or how can I get ahead or how can you help me or you can't help me at all. So I don't want to connect with you. And there's this level of self-absorption, I think sometimes that creates an environment where when someone makes you feel unworthy, sometimes your immediate response is to lash out or to create mm -hmm. something or make someone else feel unworthy. The power dynamic can be quite negatively impactful as a result of that. Yeah, I think so. Definitely been situations where you're feeling unworthy, you're feeling less than. And, and I think I never want to be a, a person where someone's left an interaction with me feeling less than. That's something that means if I do show up, I want to make sure it's my full attention and that's being intentional. And I, I want to make sure people feel, I don't want to say worth my time or the interaction was worth it. I guess, it, I guess that's the phrase is every interaction I want to have or with people, I want them to feel like it was worth it for them, but that they also, we were able to create. I think what you're saying is that you valued their time. 
Yeah. It's that concept of worth versus value and making sure that people feel valuable after every interaction. That's beautiful. What do you think connection will look like in five years time? So I've had this very impending sense of doom about the world for a long time. And I'm not saying I'm an inherent pessimist, but I'm concerned about some of the things that we're seeing on a macro scale. I think everyone individually is still this level of connection. And and we've proven through coronavirus that when the stakes are high, people can come together and help each other and build that. But I'm increasingly concerned about this concept of tribalism in some of these factions and connection, particularly online, is starting to think more and look more and more existing in your echo chamber. So you're connecting, you can only connect with people who believe the same things that you do or validate your own opinions, your own perspectives. So that's something that I'm really concerned about that trend. If you extrapolate it out five years, the damage that that can do. I'm hoping that the humanism will prevail (laughs) and that we'll see connection as an exchange of differing ideas and reintroducing the concept of healthy, respectful debate for the purpose of reaching a better conclusion. Right now, we sort of draw our lines in the sand and we have these interactions that are really only intended to strengthen our individual worldview as opposed to learning from someone. And I really hope connection looks more and more vulnerable learning as opposed to just shouting perceived facts at one another. And this idea of tribalism, I think, is so much inherent in this idea of the other. Mm. And it comes back to the conflict and power conversations that we are having. People are so focused on the differences, they're not focused on the commonalities. And obviously, if the difference is that you hate me and you don't think I deserve to live... Certainly that is not a difference that can be fixed, but if the difference is that we are looking at an issue from different perspectives, I worry that the virtual space creates a world in which it is hard to come at differing ideas without making it combative in a way that if you are face-to-face with someone having these conversations, not even face-to-face, honestly, even if you're on a phone call with someone having these conversations, it's much harder to be cruel and it's much easier to understand another point of view and communicate yours and find common ground than it might be in the comment section of Reddit. Absolutely. And I reference this example a lot. So I should know the city. I do not. But there was a, an example I was reading or a case study of a major U.S. city. And there was a lot of tension and conflict between different factions of people over abortion and women's rights. And, it, and obviously, that's a, a really hot flashpoint for conflict in the U.S. And, and it was escalating in which there was there was actually violence against women's clinics and, and all of these things. And, and there was a few people that that brought representatives from the entire side of the spectrum into a room. And over the course of, I think it was over a year, they had monthly discussions about this. And they said it, it was obviously very, very tense at the beginning. But as the conversations, and, and I really, I have so much admiration for the, the facilitators who can do this is over months of conversation, they started to find areas of common ground and saying, okay, well, they actually agreed on these issues. Even they fundamentally disagreed about about the concept of a whole. There's a lot of common ground. The problem is that you need to invest the time and the energy and, and frankly, the emotional vulnerability into finding those elements of common ground. And the result of that experiment is that all of those agents who are involved in that community, no matter what side of the spectrum they're on, they actually work together a lot. And if there are things that come up, they sort of let people know and and they've been able to diffuse a lot of the tensions. That's such an interesting model. And and there are so many more examples of that happening on a community by community basis. It's really hard and increasingly harder to do that on a macro basis. But I, I definitely think that finding areas of common ground is so essential. And I got good at it from the years in business consulting and management consulting because you're sort of constantly thrown into new environments, new industries. And usually the full-time employees aren't necessarily thrilled you're there as an outsider to come and solve a problem. And, and in some cases, they've been telling their bosses what the answers are for years. Just no one listened to them. So 
one of the things that I always tried to do was to go in, build relationships with the employees at, at my client's firm to understand, okay, what are the areas of common ground? What are all the things that we agree? And if you're going into to any sort of conflict situation, that's so important to spend the time laying that foundation because it, once you build the momentum and start a rhythm of discussing about the things you agree, then it, it diffuses a lot of the tension when you don't when you get to the points where you don't agree. And in some cases, you're, you're fundamentally not agree. If somebody is pro-life and someone is pro-choice, there are some fundamental things that they're not going to change. But there's a lot of room for cooperation and collaboration in a lot of the middle areas. And I hope that that as a model and as a template for connection is what we can get to. I don't know if we can, but I would love to see it. I love the idea of investing the time, the energy and the emotional vulnerability and actually understanding that that is challenging, but it's hard to hate what you see. And if you have the capacity to invest that time and energy and that emotional vulnerability, and it's in a way that feels safe or that can be safe, what a difference it makes to the whole. And I think there's a a necessary need to, where possible, the discomfort that one may feel in the process of making change is important because it means taking down that barrier and and building something that's a little bit better where those feelings won't take place later on in their lives or in the lives of others. It comes down to that systems approach and that systems thinking. And, and I'm reading a book called upstream right now. And it's basically how do you solve problems before they happen? And it's sort of the danger of when you see a problem and there's a knee jerk reaction to it, when really continuing to look upstream to say, okay, well, why is this problem occurring? Well, we needed to intervene at a different level. Why do all these conflict points keep going? And the further you go up the chain and, and the further you go upstream, the more nebulous and sort of potentially less quantifiable because now you're into the, how are you preventing? How do you measure prevention? How do you, what is the cost of, of preventing something? Or what is the value of preventing something? And that's where it gets messy. But on the flip side of that, I see so many relationships erode and degrade over politics and over tribalism and over these different things. And I think it takes a combination of what do we agree with? How do we build that foundation of, of what we agree with? And then thinking through on a more holistic level around, okay, what do we need to prevent that? And even it breaks my heart to hear people who are going to family gatherings and dreading it because you have a a more conservative member of the family and a more liberal member of the family and they're they're at war. And it really makes, you know, it uncomfortable for everyone. And, And if you don't want to be in that tension, it's like, okay, what are the different flashpoints? How can we avoid this? How can we focus on what connects us as people, what connects us as a family, rather than get down into the trenches? Can we have activities that give everyone a distraction that we don't end up going down to this low income denominator and fighting over what we agree or disagree with? What I've always found, I think there's a difference between productive debates that are happening from a learning orientation or from a, how do we get to a better solution to unproductive debates where people are just shouting their worldview and everyone leaves more entrenched in their position than they were before. It's, it, it's going to take a lot of tools and very deliberate thinking to cut through all of that so we can have meaningful connections. A conversation where someone digs in their heels is not the same thing as a connection. No, no, absolutely not. The vulnerability and the energy investment is very different in that situation. I guess the flip side of that too is if you're in a situation where someone is digging their heels over one specific point, that's not a connect. You could be losing out on a really important connection because you're just focusing on what you disagree with as opposed to, oh, you have a really strong shared experience with you. You both had parents with health problems or your kids are going through the same thing, or we sort of forget all of the things that we have in common and all of the elements that we could connect on. And we tend to focus on these very specific things that really don't color a lot of what our experience is as people. Focusing on the commonalities and creating conversations around them is a key message from this conversation that I would take away. But with the thought as well that because you're able to focus on those commonalities, you open the door for further conversation in such a way that means that both of you could learn and grow, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything that they are saying, you're not going into the conversation with the intention to 
change their mind, but you're going with the intention to be a visible element in their life that feels differently to the way that they do. And that opens up that opportunity for healthy debate. Yeah. And going into the conversation to learn, to learn as opposed to convince, I think is really important. You and I have so many great conversations all the time and I do always learn from them. And this one could probably go on for hours. (laughs) Last question in true paper napkin fashion, who should we connect with next and what makes them great? I'm going to connect you with my friend Ubi, who I met here. I actually met her through the Elevate Network, which is really a network around creating professional opportunities and wealth for women. She's really interesting. And she's one of the first people I met coming to London. And she works as a recruiter, but really does a lot of work in the diversity and inclusion space. So her entire worldview is shaped on connecting and belonging most importantly. And she's a a firecracker of a human being. So that's who I'm going to connect you to. I can't wait to connect with Ubi. Thank you, Jess. And thank you so much for this conversation. It has been such a delight as always. And I'm so excited to see what you do next because I know it's going to be brilliant. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I'm so proud of you for the paper napkin vision and being able to witness this come from the original vision you have for paper napkin and then walking through this evolution. And and I'm so excited for all the connections you're going to facilitate because I mean, you've built, you're pretty much solely responsible for building my friend group in London. So for that, I appreciate. (laughs) And whenever you make a recommendation that I need to connect with someone, I know that they're going to be top-notch individuals that are going to inspire me and and that I hope I can bring some inspiration to them too. So this is your wheelhouse and I'm so proud that you're doing it. You can learn more about Jess's Bank for Women at Hilda Project, H-I-L-D-A project.org. Thank you so much for listening and continuing to be a part of our growing community. It honestly makes me so excited to know that other people are listening and enjoying these conversations as much as I am. If you have a moment, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts really helps us to get in front of more people and I'd be forever grateful. Either way, until next time, be kind.